1: As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts. One of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer, and you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com/slash party. That's beer the number five the number two.com slash party and cover just £5.95 for the postage, and you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month Beer52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different Beer52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com party. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is one of the biggest stars of the last Conservative government... Edwina Curry, and this is, this reminds me so much of the Ken Clarke episode, where it's, and maybe the Michael Hazeltine one, where it's not just a chat about politics, not that any of them are just a chat about politics, that's so reductive, but I really feel like I was taken back in time in this, where you can feel, you can see the House of Commons around you and how different it was then, and the attitudes and the style of it and the tone of it was just a very different place to how it is now. I I felt it so vividly, talking to Edwina about her time there and and the campaign she worked on. And this is a broadly COVID-free conversation, which I'm sure you'd be very pleased to know. The only time that we do talk about it, I think, is um, around public health, because obviously Edwina has... um, uh, very famous experience of being a health minister delivering a very stark public health message and the reaction that that caused. I just thought it was really interesting to get her opinion about messages the public react to and the role of ministers and governments in informing the public, uh, perhaps even at times when it's controversial to do so. so. So this is just, this is wide ranging. This really feels like going to a completely different era and even in doing the interview was just a form of escapism, was just talking about politics. And obviously there are lessons for uh, contemporary politics, as there always are, but this really feels like going to a different time, like being transported away. So, um, settle into your favourite chair, pour yourself a cup or a glass of your favourite drink, and let's go back with Edwina Curry. I began by asking Edwina why a working-class girl from Liverpool... Became a conservative.
0: It did feel at times like being the only conservative in the village. Yes, um, <laughs> it was partly coming through uh, through the grammar school system, where you are taught that you know you can do anything. You get the same kind of ethos that the pub- big public schools and big private schools have, which is, um, oh, you pass a scholarship, you 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 have a an obligation and a duty to do something for the nation at large kind of thing. Uh, But also because I come from the Orthodox Jewish community, which was reeling with, uh, it was very traumatized after the war. Uh, Every bit of news that came out from Germany or from Poland was just horrible. And um, Jews are strivers. They're hard workers. They're also intensely suspicious of government action. And uh, my dad was a small businessman. He had um, a little shop, a, a gentleman's tailor. He was a, a skilled craftsman, a skilled cutter uh, in the centre of town near, in Williamson Square opposite the Liverpool Playhouse. Um, it's a bridal shop now. And um, he had all the problems of trying to be a businessman in the post-war uh, Labour era, era, and um, he was very cross. He hated all politics. He really
1: <laughs> did. I mean, some of the things you, you say really are, are, are the kind of principles of Thatcherism, of working-class people working hard for themselves, pulling themselves up and getting out of their situation, but, including having a father, I mean, two very different types of shop compared to what Margaret Thatcher's father was doing, but that, that rooting in small business. Do you feel that the modern Conservative Party still understands small business in the same way? Uh,
0: probably not, but then they didn't understand small business then. And um, it was a very big culture change. Uh, let me see if I can remember what Julian Critchley was saying about it at the time, that as Margaret, won her immense majority, I mean, they were, you, you weighed them, and people like me came in. Um, Out went the Knights of the Shires and the military medals, and in came the estate agents and the used car salesmen.
1: (laughs) Is that a good thing or a bad thing?
0: Oh, it's a much better thing if uh, if Parliament reflects the nation as a whole. And um, there was certainly still a feeling in the 1950s and 60s that Parliament was a hangover from the 1930s. It hadn't changed that much. If you had uh, landed estates then, and you had an on to your name, then you could walk into a safe Tory seat. I remember having this argument with Nick Soames, uh, who is also very much worth interviewing. And um, I, I said, you've had it so much easier than I have, you know. And he looked at me and he said, Do you know, how many seats did you fight before you came into the house? And I said, oh, just the one I got in first time. <laughs> Being Churchill's grandson, meant that people were highly suspicious of me. He said, I had to try several times. I think you had it easier.
1: <laughs> but that, that must have been such an amazing period of change to have been a young woman at that time working underneath a, a, a young, the first ever female prime minister.
0: Well, I'd followed her career for some time. Uh, there, there comes a point, certainly when I was at university, when you start to think, right, what am I going to do with my life? I'm surrounded by people also doing PPE, also convinced that they're going to be MPs. And in fact, 25 of the people I was at college with eventually ended up in the House of Commons, although one or two of them only briefly. (laughs) And you think to yourself, well, is this an impossibility? And then you look round and you see there's a handful of women in the House of Commons, including very interesting Young, attractive scientist, Margaret Thatcher, went to Oxford, um, married with two small children and um, obviously doing rather well. I think she was by then uh, a pensions minister. And you think, well, what do you need to do? You need to work hard. You need to be well organized. It helps to marry money, which I didn't. Um, It helps to focus. It helps to focus and it helps to counter the culture that says women can't do this for example, by being very reliable. So I would never promise to do anything that I might not be able to do. And if I promised, I did it. And that way, instead of being, oh, somebody with other responsibilities, I became Edwina, who always gets things done. Not that hard in the end.
1: So many politicians don't see it like that. You know, people come into politics for so many different reasons, and people in all parties, many of them are... Community, repre- community repre- representatives who just want to get stuff done and have that really pragmatic approach. Other people use it you know, as an arena to show off their own intellect or perceived intellect. It's, it's really refreshing to talk to politicians like you where the sole point of being there is purely to get things done because surely that's what the business of politics is.
0: I think so. And it was, it was something we debated a lot at, at uni. This is where actually having a politics degree is is useful? Although I wish more people in Parliament right now could handle statistics and data, because they're useless, absolutely useless. They have no idea how to quantify risk or how to compare us or any of the things that they have to do when you're trying to take very difficult decisions. But um, thinking about what government is for, 18th and 19th century thinkers had many ideas, and I, I found myself feeling I think government is there to better uh, to better the condition of the people but then you disagree with people like the socialists as to how to do it and my natural instinct was always well you better the position of the people by enabling the people to better themselves you know I read Samuel Smiles and all that stuff and that was very much Margaret Thatcher's theme as well so the fact that we were women was irrelevant what we were trying to do was very much aligned And um, the battle royal was on with socialism, with the trade unions, with the um, sclerotic and uh, archaic state of British industry, with our failure to cope with the fact that a lot of business, a lot of manufacturing was already moving to much cheaper countries and that we had to focus on uh, raising productivity in business. Much the same debates that we've been having recently. Then you get into arguments about how to do it. Uh, and the answer for each each period will tend to be slightly different but that's basically what we're up to when I was never a feminist I was sort of feminists were oh, I don't know up, up a creek without a paddle you know that none of their suggestions was actually going to promote the cause of the nation at large and uh, in many cases they were going to be doing down half the nation so how, the heck, how the heck do you expect to get elected if you're telling half the nation that they're useless
1: but there must be part of you that feels like a feminist. You're a, you're a strong woman who who had to do all of it yourself, and you rose to high office.
0: Yes, but there were other things that were more likely to hold me back, and being from the north of England, uh, being from a family with no money. Because if you're going to nurse a constituency or, or or cope with the political world, it sure helps if you've got some money in the bank. Um, Being from a culture, I think, in Liverpool that said, you can't do this, it can't be done. People like us don't do things like that. Um, I remember my mum saying when I wanted to go off to university, uh, well, you know, boys don't like clever girls, (laughs) Edwina. Some
1: boys do. I I would hope that most boys do.
0: Well, it turned out to be true for quite a few, I can tell you. Um, on the other hand, I like, I like sexy boys, so I don't care very much. Um, but my response to her was, Mum, you know, I'll find a clever boy. Don't worry. <laughs> and I did.
1: <laughs> it's not you, you've, you've been to so many places that traditionally working class people are, are told they're meant to be intimidated by, whether it's the House of Commons or whether it's Oxford. Did you ever feel intimidated on a class level in those places?
0: Well, when I got to Parliament, when I got to the House of Commons in eighty three, I immediately linked up with people I'd known at college. And we were, I should think in many ways, a a pretty successful bunch, Uh, not least because we were at uni in the late 60s when America was in Vietnam. Um, Bill Clinton was in in the uh, Oxford Union at the time we saw him. Um, The Beatles were doing brilliantly. People from my background were absolutely taking the world by storm. Um, You know, Scouse accent. We all got much more Scouse. (laughs) There's a film that we watched that's on BBC archives um, of Liverpool in 1959. And they all have Lancashire accents. It wasn't until the Beatles came along. because We all talk like that, you know, (laughs) even in the interviews and that kind of thing. So... Partly, I already knew people. I had, I had enough of a step up. But also, I'd by then done eight years on Birmingham City Council. And Brum had a long tradition of local government, having really got cracking with Joe Chamberlain back in the 1870s. They were a very proud city. Uh, local government mattered. It was a, a status thing to do. And a big effort was made on both Labour and, and Conservative sides to bring on the new lot, and nurture them, give them responsibility, and then send them to Parliament as MPs. So I was one of those. That meant that I, I got used to managing budgets of 200 million. So when I got to Parliament and I had to behave myself and wait, that was the bit of the culture I didn't like. <laughs> I went and had a moan to uh, David Hunt, who was my, my worker. I said, I want to get in there and speak. And he said, you're supposed to wait about six months as a, as a a for a maiden speech. I said, I've been running Birmingham. And he said, right, just give me a minute. He came back 10 minutes later and said, "Um, "Okay, Queen's speech tomorrow. Um, You're going to be the second speaker after Roy Hattersley." Wow. I said, what does that mean? He said, oh, you're going to be the first maiden speaker. Let's see what you can do.
1: (laughs) And how did it go?
0: Well, I just... uh, tackled it the same way that I would have done of bringing in a housing budget where I was going to put the rent up or something. I, I said who I was and why I wanted to do what I wanted to do and why it was a good thing and nice things about my predecessor and sat down.
1: <laughs> so when when Bill Clinton's at Oxford at the same time as you,
0: did you ever talk to him? Not that I recall, but I do remember he had, he had a lot of hair, curly hair and a beard and so on. There were three or four of them um, they, they were draft dodgers, but they were draft dodgers with principle. They really felt their country was wrong um, in, in principle and in practice to be in Vietnam. And 1968 was the My Lai massacre. So it was it was a tough, tough time for them. They felt both conscience-stricken that they weren't in the States and doing their bit. They were well aware that young people like themselves were getting killed there. And they were at the same time frightened of a world in which communism would be making uh, progress. And that's a dilemma. That's a big dilemma. And it took, um, well, it took another 30, 40 years for some of these issues to be resolved. But I do remember there were other Americans there. There was a a, a wonderful big preacher guy uh, from Atlanta, Georgia, uh, the Reverend something or other, but he was huge. And he dominated the union for a couple of terms while he was there. And I got chatting to him and I said, um, well, what do you people doing in Atlanta? Thinking there might be business people. And he just looked at me and he said, we own Atlanta.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was very, very good education in terms of how different the world, it addresses your own prejudices. Yeah. So, with Clinton,
1: was he impressive? Were people talking about him, saying, Oh, he's going to be a politician one day, that guy? Would you ever have thought he'd end up as president?
0: Um, When you think about it, he was on a Rhodes Scholarship. And that means he's already been chosen. And he came from Arkansas to do that. My goodness. I mean, one of the reasons why Clinton was on education, education, education is that he knew that in Arkansas, the problem was that the education achievement of the teachers was dreadful. Uh, they were barely literate, some of them. So how could they possibly raise the standards of the dirt poor kids uh, that he'd grown up with? Uh, when, when, you, when you come out of that environment, Matt, and you come up a ladder that's education, you know that's, that's one of the best means. It's not the only means. Uh, you know, Coming through business or through the entertainment world is an a, alternative. But with education, you've got the sureness of knowing that you can look anybody in the eye and say, well, I think I'm as good as you. may not be true, but you have the confidence
1: to do <laughs> The confidence is the crucial thing, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's something, certainly with class and with background, even now, so many working class kids don't have the same self-confidence that those who go to private schools or have that financial grounding that you talked about earlier What is the conservative answer to giving working class kids the sort of confidence that you had?
0: Well, a lot of those reforms that Michael Gove brought in, which have narrowed the curriculum. But nonetheless, when I listen to my 14 year old granddaughter, she understands stuff that we never did. Um, But also it can be captured a little bit by the professors. So, for example, I can just about parse a sentence. But I know what each what each bit does. She, on the other hand, can name twenty different parts of speech. And I'm,
1: <laughs>
0: if, if I want to know what something is, I can ask her. Whether she can use it or not, that's a different matter. Because our skills were uh, of learning how to write an essay, which translates into being able to write an article, or write a speech, or write a book. Right? But you're you're using your language. You're learning how to make it flow and how to make it. Uh, sing and how to make it interesting. Um, it, it really doesn't matter if it's mitosis or hyperbole. Or
1: whatever. <laughs> That's
0: probably a disease.
1: <laughs> this is what rabbits got, wasn't it?
0: To, to answer your, to answer your, your question, um, what conservative government's been trying to do is raise the standards of education right through the nation, and in particular in some of the poorest areas and poorest schools. And the Blair government, to do them credit, actually had exactly the same objective and for much the same reasons. And they did it by enabling uh, schools to come out of local authority uh, control. So you get academies all up and down the country. Um, And that gives both a degree of freedom to teaching staff and academic staff, uh, but it also gives them control of their budgets. And it can work out extremely well. So you get academies in places like Hackney doing brilliantly, absolutely brilliantly, completely ignoring all the politics and just getting on with it. You get immigrant families who are way at the top of the uh, the, uh, the merit tables or the league tables, whatever you want to call them, because they understand that this is their chance. And that turns everything um, upside down, as it were. The group that's suffering at the moment is poor white boys, particularly in the north of England. And um, that needs a lot more attention. It probably needs more people like you to become teachers, Matt. We need more blokes, right? Teaching I'd, be is not... a, I'd
1: be a rubbish teacher.
0: You'd be a brilliant teacher.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't be any good at all. I wouldn't be able to keep discipline.
0: I don't think you need to keep discipline. You need to keep <sighs> them entertained, right? If you keep them entertained, they're listening. And it would be, sir, 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 I know the answer to that.
1: <laughs> it feels like you should have gone into it.
0: I did. I did. I was a teacher for about nine years. Uh, this was not part of the plan. Again, when I was a kid, a teenager, a girl from a grammar school would have several choices. She could become a nurse. Well, I don't like blood. Anyway, I would have <laughs> been a doctor. Eh? Um, or you could become a, uh, a teacher or you could become a secretary. And I remember thinking, I think I want to be the kind of person that has a secretary, that would suit me. Um, And I really didn't plan to be a teacher because once you're in teaching, you're working very hard, you're working intellectually quite hard, and there is no mental or physical energy left to do much else. That's certainly what I found. But um, needs must. If you're the home with two small babies, you really need to find something that fits. I taught for the Open University from 1975 to about 1990. Um, no, not that long. Not that long. For about, for about five or six years. And I also taught at Kingston College of Further Education and at Bromsgrove School. Because I was in Birmingham, I couldn't teach in Birmingham school, so I tended to be nearby. I loved it. 16 plus. It's like watching flower buds open. Right, fresh, bright young minds. You can breathe anything on them. And, and they've got it for long-
1: Have you encountered any of your former pupils?
0: Oh yes. Um, in in slightly, slightly surreal circumstances. So my daughter worked for a while for McKinsey in London and she contacted me one day and she said, do you know somebody called Humphrey Cobbold? Well oh, that name rings a bell. He says you used to teach him at Kingston. Oh, run the dates past me. Oh, yes, I think I did. Just about remembered the name. Uh, why? Uh, how do you know him, Susie? He's my boss. He's the head of McKinsey. He's got 800 consultants under him. God. My and word. he says you're the reason that he, he, he's interested in business. And uh, in fact, we met. We had a glass of champagne together. Brilliant. Uh, he, now, he now runs Pure Gym. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's that, one of my pupils.
1: I think there's actually one in Kingston as well, you know. I used to live in Surbiton, and I'm sure there was a pure gym in Kingston.
0: He said he was originally going to uni to do what his parents wanted, which was law. And he got there and spent a year hating it and thought, what have I done that I've really enjoyed? Oh, I remember Mrs. Curry's classes. I used to teach uh, economic history and business studies. And oh, that's interesting. Uh, and, and the reason I taught that was somebody else was teaching economics. Uh, the, the pure theory. So I was doing what was effectively applied economics, which I love and um, enthusing everybody about how business works. Um, so we thought switch to business and the rest is many, 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 millions of pounds. I think.
1: Wow. You deserve a cut of that.
0: Nah, <laughs> but it's good to hear. Um, I've always enjoyed going to universities and speaking to students. And encouraging them and saying the sort of things that we're saying now that, um, you know, you should you should raise the bar, aim higher. Uh, if you aim high, you'll get high, even if you don't quite clear that barrier this time. But you'll learn a lot. Always be curious, always be open. Um, n- never retaliating kind. You know, it, it's interesting at how you have a debate and how you... Uh, how you defeat your uh, enemies you don't, or your rivals or your critics. You don't always do it by yelling at them. Well,
1: that, that is so relevant now, yes. I mean, t- I was going to say Twitter. I mean, not just Twitter, but if you think about the last four or five years, not just in UK politics, but it, one of the concerns that so many people who care about politics have is the tone in which people are talking to each other. Mm. And yeah. remembering that, that not getting dragged into war of attrition is really hard sometimes when your opponents can be so provocative.
0: Well, that's right. I was just going to finish that a uh, little bit by saying, so I often get people coming up to me and saying, I heard you speak in 1991 in Newcastle. <laughs> as long as they remember, that's fine. That's, that's all that needs to happen. But you're right. that tone is... Um, It's kind of 18th century at the moment. We forget that this has happened before, when um, there was a new technology, lots of handbills being printed, uh, much more literacy, uh, uh, mobs in London uh, and uh, aggression and stoking up of uh, irrational fears like fears of popish plots and all that kind of stuff. Uh, And we, we should behave better than that. What I do on Twitter, uh, a couple of things is I, I try not to go on after having a drink, not a great idea. <laughs> I try to go on when I've either got something to say or something to find out, so I'm I have a particular purpose. And if someone's being rude or unpleasant or uh, uh, obscene, quite often, um, well, I mock them or I block them.
1: <laughs>
0: it can make your Twitter feed a bit bland, though, if you block too many people.
1: Well, I think it's about picking people that you disagree with but who are civil Mm. so then at least you're exposing yourself to ideas from the other side but it's not vitriolic because that's what it's not so much that it it's offensive because after a while you kind of strangely get used to it but it it does no good surely to us as a society to talk to each other like dirt
0: I think that's right um I mean obviously one of the ways to mock somebody who's doing that is you check their profile and the were Labour Party or Liverpool Football Club fans or something rather um, stereotypical. I mean, this is what's so disappointing. People don't seem to have an imagination. Um, and then you just mock them by saying, oh, so what happened to be kind, huh? Huh?
1: <laughs>
0: you should shut them up. Or occasionally, if, if they put a very bland, almost anonymous profile on Twitter, but they revealed their name in the Twitter hashtag, uh, uh I can look them up and find out who they are. And they say, oh, gosh, you are being coy, Professor.
1: <laughs> That's such a good way to deal with it. So what sort of stuff do people say to you? I mean, I'm sure you get a lot of positive stuff as well. But what sort of things do people say?
0: I'll give you an example uh, quite recently about coronavirus. Now, we have more deaths. Our death toll is the highest in Europe. And that's partly because we're a big country. We have a big elderly population. We have a substantial BAME population. We have a fat population. We have a lot of obesity and diabetes. Um, And there are some things we haven't done right, like we didn't look after the care homes properly. Uh, But if you look at cases per million, Ireland's rate of infection appears to have been higher. Now, you can debate. Why that might be the case, and it could well be the case that they've just managed to do more tests for their size of the population. But it's debatable. Plus, it's not a competition, it's actually worth debating things like this. But oh my god, you should hear them. Um, absolutely unbelievable. I have a cousin as well that I, I swap Facebook pages with. She lives in Canada and she's an anti vaxxer. Oh no. And she's a nut nuts but um, she's saying she's saying it's my body my choice and I'm putting on my body my choice here's my arm I'll be first in the queue
1: but also it's not just well her body is her body but whether people choose to get vaccinated or not does have implications for the health and the safety and the well-being of the wider population because if less people have the vaccine then more of us are at risk
0: Oh, but it's a conspiracy of the government. The government has an agenda. It wants you to be vaccinated. To bloody right they do. And the, the, the sad thing about it is, of course, that the as long as eighty percent or whatever the figure is uh, of the population do get vaccinated, then the rest get a free ride because there's nowhere for the the, back, the, the virus to go. Um, but I think I think it's wonderful. I mean, I would, as a health minister back in the eighties. Uh, part of my job was to bring in the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, and rubella. And we were actually quite slow to bring it in in the UK. By the time we did it, 90 countries were using it. And my first question is, what about side effects and reliability? And it turned out to be one of the best tolerated vaccines in the world uh, until uh, Dr. Andrew Walker came along, who was a a quack and was busy telling everybody that uh, it was dangerous and it was causing autism. The result of that, of course, is that children have been dying of, of measles. So vaccination is, is means the world of difference between the world that my grandparents grew up in and my world. So I've had shingles vaccination. I've had pneumonia vaccination um, when I go to other countries. Yeah, here's the arm. It'll cope with another prick. There we go. <laughs>
1: Uh, perhaps an unfortunate phrase, but,
0: um, or maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: fascinating with the MMR vaccine that one, as you say, that one individual. It wasn't just about the take up of a MMR; just the anti vaxxer movement in general that was fueled by that. The legacy of that decision to publish that article has been profound for 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 so many people's health. It's remarkable that it's. It's lasted so long.
0: Uh, well, I'm also uh, quite critical of the BBC and the way they handled it. There was a Panorama uh, programme done about it at the time. And I was invited to contribute. As And we were going back now closer to the time when I was a health minister. And uh, I did an interview and uh, said all the right things. And uh, they didn't use it. So the programme actually gave a lot of publicity to Andrew Walker. And because it was the BBC and Panorama, it appeared to be saying there's something here to consider. Um, the, the fact that I mean, it always seemed to me that if you find uh, traces of measles, uh, measles virus in children with um, various kinds of problems, then that's a strong case for eradicating it from the nation. And that's actually a strong case for vaccination, not a case against it.
1: You've obviously had your own high-profile personal experience of having to deliver a blunt public health message and the political implications of that. Uh, It was fascinating. Before talking to you, obviously, I've refreshed my memory and watched some of those videos. How vindicated you were about being really direct with the public and that you tried to be more subtle. That hadn't worked. And you were were clear with the public about the risk from eating Mm. eggs that had salmonella. It's remarkable. And maybe it's because the political context is different, maybe it's not. But it's remarkable how much pressure was on you as a result of telling the public really important information that helped Mm. them stay healthy.
0: Well, uh, thank you for that. But uh, in fact, we were involved at that time in two different public health campaigns with rather similar, uh, rather parallel tracks, because the other one, of course, was HIV AIDS. We had the chief constable of Manchester, the big guy James Anderson with a big beard looking like an Old Testament prophet thundering from from the heights of Manchester um, about how wicked it was and how we shouldn't be doing anything like that. We had um, pickets on outside clinics where we were uh, treating people. It it was not a great time in that uh, sense. And what we had to do with that was figure out how do you take something which is only affecting a small part of the population and get everyone to behave so that if it is spreading through the rest of the population, it can be stopped in its tracks? We had a, a big household campaign, we had a big budget exercise, we put a leaflet through everybody's door for that. So you can, and that was 86, 87. So by the time you get to 88 and we've got a problem with food infection, I naturally assume that we might do something similar. And nothing was more surprising to hear the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food saying, we don't have a problem at all. Not, oh, whoops, we have a problem, but we don't have a problem at all. We don't know what you're talking about. When we got every kidney dialysis machine in the country occupied by somebody who got food poisoning as a result of eggs. And And as you say, we tried doing the softly, softly thing. And it, it it wasn't helping. The message had to go out to the public. And I had at the back of my mind something entirely practical as well, which is, this is winter, 88. Uh, if we're going to the summer and we have homemade mayonnaise and ice cream and we're going to have an epidemic, and then I will be held responsible and I will have to resign. And I think I'd rather just give people the information that they need and let them decide. And what I expected then was that the government would say oh yes okay right we've got some problem here let's see if we can deal with it
1: and they didn't the the sheer pressure that was put on the government and and you personally to resign is that partly explained by the conservative party's natural constituencies being rural farming places and that that lobby perhaps would have had more influence over say a conservative government than a labor one
0: Yes, I think there's something in that, but there's an element of legend about it rather than practice. Uh, The reason Margaret Thatcher won big time, particularly in 83 and in 87, was not because of the rural communities, which are going to vote Tory anyway. It was because of the urban communities and the, 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 as you mentioned, the working people, the aspirational working class and the middle class people who felt that they were being... um, They were getting some backing from the government for the first time. And I don't think it's entirely a coincidence that after the egg incident, from 89 onwards, the polls started to go down. Bernard Ingham certainly felt that that the decline started at that point and for that reason, that people began to feel government doesn't care about us. It's gone back. It's reverted to its traditional stance of of liking the toffs. Uh, And it may well be that there was an element of truth in that—that that Margaret, having started from very humble beginnings, had kind of forgotten them, and was was relying much more heavily in, in Parliament on people that had ons in front of their names, some of whom were completely useless, like Peter Morrison, for example. But it could well be, you know, and if, if it's very easy to lose track of where you're coming from when you're still going forward.
1: There are. Resignations and there are resignations. Was it completely your decision or was it a conversation with Margaret Thatcher where really you've been fired, but you say you've resigned?
0: Um, Gosh, it's a long time ago and I don't remember all the details. I remember being deeply disappointed, Matt. Bewildered, because I didn't quite know what was going on. There were supposed to be a lot of writs flying around from um, the uh, UK Ag Producers' Council. And um, governments don't like legal action. They don't like to have to defend their actions in court because it's a long, protracted, expensive business and it perpetuates a row. Very often the easiest way to shut down a row is to shut down the person who is regarded as having generated it. But I was bewildered and I thought it was bad politics. I remember saying to Margaret, I did actually ask if I could see her uh, to give her my letter um, in person. And I said to her, This is bad politics, you know. Good politics is looking after the people. Bad politics is, an, is when you're only looking after part of the people. And we shouldn't be looking after bad producers.
1: What did she so, say to that?
0: Yes, dear, I'm sure you'll be back.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Do you think? I mean, so. With Margaret Thatcher and I was never, I've never met her. There's so much about her that is mystique and, and myth and legend. How, how did the public perceptions about her correlate with her personality in situations like that?
0: There, there were three different Margaret's that we were able to observe. Uh, the first was when she was first elected as leader of the party. And for the first couple of years of being in office, which was really quite hesitant and cautious, um, was trying to find a way. At that time, all the political and economic philosophy that was available was all left wing. There was very little about um, modern right of center thinking, a bit from Milton Friedman, but there needed to be more more figuring out what we were trying to do and how it would work. How could you manage without the trade unions? Nobody had ever tried. And so she was quite hesitant. Then the Falklands happened, and it turned out she was the best man in the cabinet. And also that it chimed with the views of the ordinary people in ordinary streets. And from there onwards, for about five or six years, she could do no wrong. And whether by luck or whether by instinct, she kept hitting the right thing, right? So who suffers from strikes? People who are forced to go on strike, uh, and they're often quite skilled workers. They uh, who suffer from strikes are small business people. They have, they have they feel powerless if if they have a government that's trying to tackle the trade unions and that is big enough to do it and that takes on the entire um, union establishment in the form of Arthur Scargill and the coal miners. They will vote for that. Very very keen. Um, I represented a coal mining constituency that stayed at work and when I asked why what was going on um, I remember the branch secretary saying to me rather dolefully this is in the miners welfare in Swaddling and Joe said well we hear all this about rolling back tides of Thatcherism Edwina people around here voted for tides of Thatcherism that's why you're here so I said well how do we carry she said well Your job is to get us somewhat else to do. And uh, that was a big responsibility for a new MP, believe me. I hadn't a clue. I mean, you know, when I was asked what I knew about coal mining, I had to admit that um, there weren't too many coal mines in Liverpool. But the third bit, so that went through the the next five years. But the last bit started about 1988, and particularly became uh, obvious in 89, which was the 10th anniversary of her winning, uh, becoming prime minister, where she became very arrogant and very sure that her views would dominate. She was on the world stage. She was seeing off communism. There was Reagan on the one hand and Gorbachev on the other. She's doing business with the the, the good and the great. She's joined the pantheon of great political leaders. And she's not listening to us. And it's sliding away from us, and you can feel it, you absolutely feel it. And we got to the stage by 1990 when we thought, "Come, we come to the next election, we're going to lose it. So if we want to kick Thatcherism, we're going to have to get rid of Thatcher. Oh, that was a horrible time, really horrible, but it had to be done. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs.
1: Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at borough.com slash ACAST. That's borough.com slash ACAST. borough.com slash ACAST. And how did it feel being from Liverpool and proud to be from there? Because during that period, it felt like Liverpool was the front line of the resistance, really, to Margaret Thatcher. That if there was a culture war of that period, Liverpool was the epicentre of it I mean it felt like Liverpool was kind of under attack from the Thatcher government and that's how a lot of people would have felt I mean did you have any sympathy with with that view
0: um well I'd grown up with a lot of that um Degsy I'm trying to remember Derek Hatton that's it um he went to the Liverpool Institute for Boys and I was at the Liverpool Institute for Girls we are exact contemporaries and he Closed it down. Anyone that could do that to the Liverpool Institute um, is a chancer. In fact, I think his uh, record since has shown he's a chancer in all sorts of ways. Um, And what they were trying to do was, was take over the Labour Party, but without any coherent philosophy. It was stuff that we'd seen a lot of in Liverpool. It was militant, both big and small M. It was aggressive. And, of course, the, the immediate folk memory it raised in me was that's what the Blackshirts were like. Uh, that's not democracy. That's not that's not doing anything that's in the interest of the welfare of the people that you pretend to represent. That's uh, a power grab. And it took uh, Neil Kinnock a while to get his head around that. But that's exactly how he saw it as well. Uh, And he staged that great conference of theirs. I think it was 1985. Don't worry, my husband will answer that, (laughs) I hope. (laughs) He staged that great conference in which he basically read the Riot Act to uh, Derry Catton and the trade unions. I mean, the tragedy of it, Matt, is that nothing they did benefited Liverpool. And it drove investment away. Uh, More to Manchester, where they kept their heads down. It drove people away. We had a reunion of the school, of my, my part of the school. And of the entire sixth form, we'd all left, all of us. So an entire educated batch of kids. Had decided that Liverpool had nothing to offer them. And we'd left and we'd taken whatever ability and expertise we had somewhere else. And the city dropped from pop- in population in 1951, when I was a kid, it had 800,000 people. By the time we get to the 1980s and 90s, we're down to 450,000. It lost population almost as quickly as Belfast did, and yet with no warfare. That's a tragedy. You always have to look at how good is your philosophy? Does it bring in resources? Does it enable people to improve their lives? Can they stay? Do people come into your area and want to actually live here and want to work here? And do they see that as improving their lives and the opportunities for their children? That's the best uh, the best verdict that you can ever see. G-
1: governments have responsibility though as well, don't they? I mean, it- A lot of the issues of the local authority that you accurately describe in Liverpool are are, are well documented. But the government of the day perhaps felt, I mean, people in Liverpool might have felt, even if they weren't militant and even if they weren't Labour, that the government of the day perhaps turned its back on them. You you know, the documents we see years later about the idea of just letting Liverpool get on with it itself. Quite horrific things to read about a government's attitude to, Mm. to a city full of people.
0: Well, it wasn't Michael Heseltine's opinion because what Heseltine was doing with the uh, with the garden uh, uh, efforts uh, was taking masses, thousands of acres of derelict land and turning them into gardens and shows and so on. And it was copied around the world. I mean, it wasn't just done in Liverpool and Glasgow and Newcastle. I, I went to one that was in, in Japan when I was there and Heseltine opened it. And very, very proud we British were. Um, but you can't just do it on a kind of, a symbolic basis. It has to be done more systematically. And a better example would be the efforts that Bob Mellish did, for example, in Canary Wharf, where the whole of the Isle of Dogs, all that derelict area, um, was taken over. I went round there with him and um, he was saying, government can't do it. Government can make it possible, but it needs bigger money than government can do. So it has to be done by the, the private sector and That was the whole uh, Canary Wharf uh, thing. The government's most most effective investments are twofold to to, um, bring an area up. One is education. And the thing that really made a difference at bringing Liverpool back was having two brilliant world-class universities. So that every September, 60,000 people would arrive in Liverpool with their middle-class instincts intact. And you see this in proper restaurants and and, uh, all sorts of venues. And so that becomes a very important... But the other thing that governments have to do and is rather neglected in the North is transport. Uh, Connectivity really, really matters. Uh, The the whole of the North should be one big, not conurbation, but it should be one big... uh, Powerhouse. Uh, Powerhouse is the word. Well, yeah, but you have to improve the rail links first. Um, That's hopefully happening now i hope coronavirus has not uh, upset that apple card i think a lot of the new northern mps have made it quite clear to the government you want to hang on to power you have to do this you have to get on with this work
1: just on coronavirus and it is nice talking about politics without having to talk about coronavirus it's a nice um escapism really to think about other mm-hmm. political issues but i was just thinking to return really to your experience of that public health message and being really direct with the public is it, based on your experience. And obviously it costs you your ministerial position sadly, but do you think that is always the best approach that the, the government and ministers, even if it upsets powerful interest groups, should always be direct with the public about the risk to health?
0: Um, y- yes, but I think we have to be aware of the problems of saying this too often. Uh, Professor Neil Ferguson, um, (laughs) who uh, managed to kick himself in the backside, uh, has repeatedly said whenever there's been uh, a world crisis on on SARS or MERS or uh, any of the others, that we're going to have lots and lots of deaths in this country. And it's turned out not to be true now. When you, when you look at the way a forecast is offered, it may be the worst scenario that is hitting the headlines. And, of course, it's always before government mitigating action. But I think there's been an element of crying wolf perhaps just a bit too often, which meant that when we got cracking on this one in February, it sounded like we were crying wolf again. And the government wasn't taking it seriously themselves. We had the prime minister going and shaking hands with COVID patients in hospital. Oh, it's only like flu. And that turned out to be a big mistake, big mistake. Um, And it also turns out that possibly Neil Ferguson's modelling was a little bit out of date as well. In the end, ministers can only take decisions based on what they know at the time. You know that that classic remark of Donald Rumsfeld, well, we know what we know, but we yeah. don't know what we don't know. And it's created a lot of mockery. But he's it's right. True. Yeah. It's true. What you don't know is what you don't know. What you can do is is commission the research, get the work done so that the information is improving rapidly all the time. And you also have to be open to being able to say we made a mistake. So the Prime Minister's talked about his bitter regret about. Uh, old people's homes, care homes. Uh, and that needs, I think, now to be reinforced, now that we know that about a third of all deaths have occurred in care homes when there was an assumption that none of them would. That was wrong. That was absolutely wrong. It, a, a blame game is not helpful. A, an open-minded research game is essential. But in the end, ministers have to take decisions and they have to take them now because it's going to be a press conference in 10 minutes and we have to do it right now and we have to choose. And that's why we elect them. And that's why we should cut them some slack, I reckon, at least until the inquiry.
1: (laughs) Do you think there's so much talk about nudge uh, theory and and behavioural science and all this sort of thing? Is just a simple direct message in general the best way to get people to do things rather than being overly clever about it
0: well simple messages are, are great um even if they are uh, if they raise eyebrows i remember when we talked about safe sex with uh, on hiv we had to change the law and the rules so that we could use the word condom on british television
1: is that right yeah well, because <laughs> the, the word itself was considered provocative
0: Oh, it was not allowed. Um, But so you're working in in that um, that kind of environment much of the time, and the nudge thing, which is based on behavioural economics as an economist, I think that's wonderful. If you could nudge people into not using plastic bags by just charging five p for them, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Uh, The fewer rules, my instinct says. That you have the better and the more responsibility you expect people to take the better because that's all the process of um, not infantilizing the public and of treating them like intelligent human beings when you have to change the rules that's when the problem occurs so when we first went into lockdown everyone's saying what's what's an essential job?" and they had to work it out for themselves including the police who sometimes got it wrong now we're moving out of lockdown and we're saying go to work if you can. And, and people are saying, but it's risky. Do we have to wear face masks? And the answer is work it out. Work it out in your environment. What can you do? Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Wipe the surfaces. Be nice to your granny and do her shopping for her.
1: That sounds particularly close to home. Are, 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 people, are, you, uh, are you having people do you shopping for you?
0: My daughter did the shopping about an hour before we um, we started talking. And the, the slight problem that I find is that I make a shopping list and various people will ask me what I need. So I just send them a, a photograph of the shopping list. So I end up with an awful lot of tomatoes. Well, that's good
1: because they're apparently the hardest thing to get hold of, particularly tinned ones. Um, yeah, the AIDS campaign is one of the the first ones that I remember really as a child and how shocking and scary it was. And it put the fear of God into me as, as a kid. I suppose in a way that means that it worked. Is it, you know, with things like that, is it important to scare people?
0: Sometimes it is important to scare people to make them realize this is, this is serious. And uh, of course we not only had uh, gay people with uh, this awful, disease, horrible, horrible disease, a horrible way to die, nothing we could do about it. Um, we had people coming in from Africa, uh, and we had people um, who'd have blood transfusions. Uh, with, uh, I mean, th- this has morphed into what's regarded as a scandal now, but the fact is we had various uh, constituencies, if you like, where uh, HIV uh, was there. And um, that if we wanted to stop its spread, it doesn't, it doesn't spread by breathing on somebody. It spreads mainly through exchange of bodily fluids, and that mostly means sex. And um, we had to warn people that at the moment of your greatest ecstasy, you have to protect yourself. That's a hard, a hard message to get across, but it worked. It worked, and we avoided having an epidemic in this country. I do quite a lot of work in Swaziland, Eswatini, which is a million people landlocked country on the eastern side of South Africa. And um, they lost a whole generation through AIDS. And they have, out of a million people, they have a quarter of a million people on AIDS medications. So it gives you an idea of what can happen when people ignore messages or don't know the message, or when the government um, either ignores good sense or tells you you can't catch it if you have a shower afterwards. It's quite, quite significant stuff. South Africa and Eswatini and, and a couple of other places are still suffering. Plus, of course, you can't assume there's going to be a remedy. Uh, we put a lot of money into HIV vaccine, vaccine research and it has not ever worked. Uh, what has worked is that there are remedies now in terms of medication, but you have to be able to eat enough to take them. And in a country like Eswatini, that's also a big issue.
1: I mean, that's obviously one of the concerns with coronavirus is we all kind of presume a vaccine will come along. But what HIV proves is that that's not necessarily going to be the case.
0: Which is also why a lot of research is going into uh, remedies, medications of various kinds. um, And also how you can live your life in as healthy a, a way as possible so that you are improving your immune system's response to it. Um very amused at Boris deciding that he's going to lose weight. I could just imagine um, Carrie, who's very smart, thinking behind the scenes, yes, I've been telling him for years. Of course he should.
1: <laughs> I mean, it must have been. I mean, the social attitudes back then towards gay people and, and around HIV AIDS were, were not what they are now. And we still have huge issues as a society and as a planet in the way that we talk about gay people and, and things like HIV and AIDS. What was the atmosphere like in the Conservative Party at that time towards these issues?
0: Oh, February. Oh, my God. And um, particularly as we came towards 1994, um, when we were involved in Age of Consent, for 25 years, nobody had debated the rights of gay people. Uh, The Clause 28 that went through was intended to stop Ken Livingstone in his tracks. Um, and to stop the promotion of what was seen as um, what was seen as an offensive lifestyle, uh, and to stop it happening in schools, all sorts of you know, very Victorian memes flying around there, as you could imagine. And it was immediately afterwards that a number of us thought, "No, this is wrong. You cannot have the law discriminating against a group of people. Everyone should be equal under the law." And um, When we started then to talk about it, it was my suggestion that we do Age of Consent, because the original suggestion was that we just try and get rid of Clause 28. I said, no, you want something much more personal where Tories would say, none of my business. None of my business who you sleep with. Just don't scare the neighbours. All right. Uh, And that we do believe in light hand legislation. So let's take some legislation away. Let's make people equal again. And uh, enable them then to live their lives as they wish. That was the base of the argument it was equal rights, not human rights. But I had people coming up to me in the Conservative Party where officially we didn't have any gays. Uh, Chris Smith was the only gay in the, on the Labour side. Uh, when I asked what, what was the advantage of me taking the legislation forward, they answered, Well, you're a woman. Uh, yes. And you've got daughters and you're happily married. OK, right. Um, Fine. Nobody can point the finger at you, Adriana. All right. And of course, what they're trying to do is counter other people's uh, prejudice. There's a prejudice that's flying around now, Matt, that really needs to be countered. And it's the prejudice that says that old people are dispensable and don't really count. How do you know when it's a prejudice? It's when they never feature in the adverts. They never feature in the entertainment programs. They never come first in the press conferences, right? And then suddenly something happens like deaths in care homes and suddenly everyone's feeling very ashamed of themselves. But that's, an, that's something that we need to address. We have 10 million re- people over 70 in this country and we exist and we are alive and we are contributors to society and we are bloody taxpayers and we're voters.
1: I would always rather have more experienced, as a politically correct way perhaps of saying older, (laughs) I would always rather have older people in charge. I think experience is one of the most undervalued assets in politics. I I don't want young leaders. I think it's good to have a balanced house of commons in terms of age and class, race and everything. But in terms of the people doing the top job, I'm always more reassured by people with a few grey hairs.
0: I would say people who have done something else. Uh, when I'm asked at, uh, by students what advice I would give to someone who is thinking about becoming an MP, I would always say to them, do something else for at least 10 years. Right. Go, go away and do something else. You, you can dabble in politics or stand the council or help candidates and deliver leaflets. Fine. But go and earn your living doing something else for 10 years. Why? Because you'll be a much better character at some future point if you if then in your 30s you decide to want to be an mp you'll have a bags of experience you'll have something to fall back on uh, you will have friendships outside politics you will have a perspective outside the political bubble um, you might have found your life partner and you will certainly have worked out your life philosophy that's when you become a much better MP. But if you if you read politics at uni, go and work for an MP, uh, go straight into the House of Commons in a, in a good seat. What then happens is when the disasters take place, and they do, they're bound to, when things go wrong, you've nothing to fall back on. Does that make sense?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think the public would rather have politicians who've done something else as well. It's good just good to have a house of commons that has that has that life experience in a, in a, in a broad variety of sectors but um just come back to the age of consent debate because i watched it some of it earlier on youtube and the mp sat next to you to your right is quentin davies who later defected to the labour party when gordon brown became prime minister and i just wonder that you know you're socially liberal you're campaigning on behalf of the rights of gay people and and those voices perhaps hadn't been, hadn't had a strong advocate inside the Conservative Party. It was so visible for so long. And you're dealing with, you know, people conflating paedophilia with homosexuality, which is, you know, incendiary propaganda against gay people. Hmm. Did at any point you think, I can't stay in this party. This is, I don't recognise myself amongst these people.
0: Um, No, it was almost the other way around. The feeling was, um, people like me have got to stay put. People like me have to stay put because we don't want the headbangers taking over. Um, And I think by then, I mean, in in my 40s, I've long since worked out that, uh, as you say, I'm socially liberal. I don't believe we should discriminate ever. The law should be equal. I don't believe in all women's shortlists and, and don't believe in us and them. I hate having the world divided in binary uh, sections as if we're supposed to be supporters of one lot and haters of the other lot. I hate that. That's not good. Um, but I'm economically quite conservative. Um, I worry about debt and I worry about not having sound money and a whole host of things like that. I play the stock market like everybody else. have lost some money recently, but what the heck, you know, we'll cope. Um, it. It, that, there's only one place for somebody like me, and it's not the Lib Dems. Apart from anything else, you don't know what the Lib Dems are going to believe this time next week. It has been said so truly, and I can see your ceiling. I'm just looking at, at it now. Um, they're trying to argue with Lib Dems, are like trying to nail gen, jelly to the ceiling. Uh, and they're all things to all people, right? So in a Tory area, they are Labourish, but not Labour. And in a, a Labour area, they're Toryish, but not Tories. I think that's hypocritical. I really do. Um, I have were you, very were you little ever time. To...
1: Labor you by New Labour then? You know, you had a, a, a party that was fiscally responsible, uh, independent of the Bank of England, but socially liberal. And obviously, Quentin Davis, quite late into the New Labour period, decided to jump ship. I just wondered if at any point you thought, actually, you know, during that late 90s, early noughties period where you had economic competence and a socially liberal government, whether you ever looked across and thought, actually, I feel like I've got more in common with them for a bit.
0: I don't think I had much uh, in common with them, apart from anything else. A lot of them came from um, much more elevated backgrounds than me. Um uh, and, and yes, I can understand them being intensely relaxed about people being filthy rich, but you know, what As about. As long the they rest? pay their taxes. Well, yes. Um, there was a, a, an element of Camelot about that whole court that I found um, unattractive, off putting. I didn't care for it. Um, and various people I knew who met Cherie Blair, another scouser found that she was behaving more like a, a, a queen-in-waiting than anything else. Now, you shouldn't be put off by personalities. I know that. Um, and there was a sense in which when, when Blair won, I wasn't surprised. And that election campaign of, of 97, he played absolute blinder by doing a Lib Lab pact and therefore putting up only one candidate against Tories. He wiped out safe Tory seats all over the country and it took a long, long time to recover. Um, but by then I was off. I would stood to make sure that my constituency had a decent Tory MP as the candidate. And I knew where I was going to lose big time. And the, the sense of bereavement next day when people came up to me in the street and said, I'm sorry, Mrs. Curry, was, it was nothing personal, but your party were a shambles. And I had to say, yeah, well, I, I agree. They hadn't actually wanted change. They wanted us to be better. So fine, okay, so I'm going to go off and do other things I'm writing books I'm doing radio and broadcasting, and so on, and I'm waiting for things to improve and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and then David Cameron came along, and I think he'd taken exactly the same attitude uh,
1: well, the first thing I should say is I've met Cherie Blair a few times, and I can reassure you that she's a, a wonderful woman, and i'm I'm sure you would get on uh, were you to ever meet. I do want to ask you about your diaries because um you're a highly decorated and uh, successful author writing various novels and things. I was reading your diaries, 87 to 92, and I found it a really emotional read. They're <laughs> so personal in a way that, I mean, there are other types, I've read other diaries, Jeffrey Archer's Prison Diaries, which are hilarious, and Dennis McShane's Prison Diaries. But this, I suppose you wrote it. What's so magical about them is you wrote them not really planning to publish them. Is that That's right. right.
0: That's right. Um, I wrote them because it was obvious. I started them in eighty-seven. It was obvious we'd just won the second, the, our second election, and Margaret's third. That something extraordinary was happening, and that it was worth making a note as I observed it of what was what was happening. I was in government. It's great having being a, a junior minister in government because you have a ringside seat. Nobody's paying any attention. Uh, you're sitting there listening, and you have an opinion as to who's doing well, and who's not doing well. And you go home, write it down. It's a little bit of an element of, um, well, we'll find out if I'm right at some future point. Uh, I thought that at some future date, I might write a memoir of, of Margaret Thatcher, and that that would have some value looking at it as, a, as a, a woman from a similar sort of background, in which case I needed contemporary notes and I needed my notes. And all I really said to myself was, a bit like Samuel Pepys, that I would write down what I saw. I would write down how I felt about it, and I would not go back and change it, even if I was wrong. And that when, you was come,
1: when you come to the point where you publish it, I mean, are they completely unedited, or is there some stuff that you did take out?
0: I said to uh, Alan Sampson, who was my editor for... Novels, my uh, my my amanuensis, as it were, uh, at uh, Little Brown, and he said, "What are you going to publish next?" And I said, "Well, I was thinking of doing a, a memoir, of Margaret Thatcher. I've got some notes." And his eyes lit up, and he said, "Did you keep a diary?" I said, "I did, yes." He said, "Can I have a look?" Said, oh, yes, and I dug one of the early books out and showed him, and um, he said, "Well, the first step was to get this transcribed." And then we can have a look and see what we've got. And I had uh, 10 years of them at that stage. Well, I had more, but I, gave, I, I kept the most recent ones back because I had, had a divorce and a remarriage and so on. I kept those back. They had never been published. Um, and I'd written half a million words. My word. <laughs> and um, they handed it over to um, uh, Adam, oh, what was his name? He'd, he'd done the Peep's Diaries. I was so, so very um, honoured and, and um, uh, impressed. And um, he came back and he said, there's two books here. And there was a sense in which it kind of slid out of my hands. I, by the time you've got two remarkable publishers there doing it, you're thinking, all right, well, we'll go with this. Let's see how we get on. And so we did the first one um, and they didn't make any money on that. But the second one was still sitting there on a the disk, so we published that one later on
1: it's because they're not just a record of the politics of the time. they're highly personal experiences and your your innermost feelings. There's something really uh, you know intimate about it. It's such a personal thing to read. <laughs> I mean did it there must have been some tri- obviously certain revelations were sort of mm. got more attention, but it's not it's not so much that it's just a record of your feelings. It's such a personal thing to put out there. I mean, did that feel well,
0: exposing? Um, not really, because it was an element of truth uh, in, in them. And it was a long time uh, ahead between 2001 and, and the time uh, that was writing. We were right in the middle still of the Labour government Um Many of the people who have been involved in had, had died. In fact, when I came to do the second lot, we could I could be as rude as I liked about some of them because they'd all died. <laughs> Great. Um, and when you write a diary, it's quite cathartic, and that's why reading them is so interesting. I think if if you're in a unique situation as I was, there isn't really anybody you can unburden yourself to. Um, if you you really don't want to go you don't want to go home and be talking politics to your spouse. You want to have a break from it. Um, I don't have a sister. I have a a, a brother um, but he, he's not somebody who at that time, I would have talked to he he would talk to me now, and we're we're much closer since uh, our, our parents have died. There, there isn't anyone, you know and then who are you going to trust if you if you talk to somebody, they're going to tell the press. They're going to make money out of you. Um, that, no, you write it down and you feel better after you've written it down. And how does it
1: feel to read back? Because I've never kept a diary. How does it feel to read back years later? The things Do you, do you still recognise even phrases that you use or sentence construction? Or do you think, God, I've changed so much since then?
0: I, it feels like it's a, a, a person I used to know very, very well. And I haven't been in touch with for a long time—a kind of younger self. Um, it, it felt very strange when I when I left government and left the House of Commons. I knew I wasn't going back. I wasn't going to be one of those hankering after. Uh, going back into the the chamber. I'd done my bit. I'd done 22 years in elected office with Birmingham and with the House of Commons, and it was time to concentrate on other things, like, for example, being able to earn some money because none of those jobs had actually produced uh, very much of an income. Um, And so when I would look at old photos, it wasn't me in those photos or the old press cuttings. It was obviously the person I used to be, but it felt like my younger sister. If someone I knew very well and loved very dearly, but no longer existed.
1: And there, I can't imagine what it feels like. It must be, it must be like, it's like a time capsule, really. Yeah. But from yourself, it's like, it's almost like you're traveling in time. Even me reading it, it feels, I almost feel like I've discovered your diary in your desk and I've taken a peek at it. It feels like <laughs> such a. A personal thing to be reading your innermost thoughts and, and emotions.
0: Well, you can put that down to um, the the editors, to so Alan Sampson, uh, Adam Sisman uh, was his name. Um, both extraordinary uh, intellects, extraordinary men. I knew Alan Sampson very well because I'd worked with him on several books. Um, when you're when you're with an editor, when i was lucky i was writing at a time when books were the dominant way of of communicating this sort of stuff there, there wasn't any internet uh, certainly not of uh, intellect uh, internet of ideas and so really quite astonishingly able people were working in publishing and over a period of time over years you meet these people you know them you work with them they look through what you've written they say that's great that's good that's not brilliant um my my first editor, uh, Richard Cohn, uh, when I was writing novels, I said to him, "I don't know how to write." And he said, "Just keep going. What I will do is I'll give you a tick for a good paragraph and a double tick for a, a really good one, and an X for no." So sort of basically simple system, learn,
1: isn't it? That's a, that's a good way to learn. But <laughs> do you still get? I mean, do people still? The diaries obviously caused such a fuss because of the stuff about John Major. I mean, do people still? ask you about it and I'm wary of asking you about it because it feels like such a personal thing to ask you about even though it's all out there
0: oh usually clever dicks ask me about it
1: yes
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, what I mean is that I've done a lot of speaking on cruise ships you know the guests and I talk about Margaret and I talk about women in politics and so on you have to make it funny and lively um, and you almost deliberately leave out things so that questions can be asked, right? Yes. And there's usually some, as I say, clever dick. There's, you're doing this after dinner, and you have to do it twice. You have to do it uh, once for the early part of the second sitting and later for the, you know. And There will always be somebody who's been to both dinners and both talks and has had several glasses of wine in between and thinks she's very clever. And so they'll they'll ask a question in a rather sexy way, and, and my response usually is to look at them, bearing in mind I'm all dressed up, and say, um, maybe we should talk about that later. It usually shuts him up because his wife's usually with him. <laughs>
1: that will, that will do the trick. What a great way to deal with it. Um it's,
0: I mean, it's, it's called it's called dealing with a heckler, Matt.
1: Yes, I do have to occasionally deal with that
0: myself. This is why. This is where the skills that we learned 50 odd years ago still matter. Yeah. But um, we had to learn how to stand up in front of a, a room of hundreds and hundreds of people without a mic to begin with. I had to, uh, Learning how to use a mic came later. And you have to be able to convince these people that they're listening for fun, that they're enjoying this, that you're a good thing, that what you represent is, is um, worthy of attention, and um, that you, they can ask questions and you will deal with them respectfully. You won't try and sit on them. And then some idiot stands up and asks a question. And it's very funny when you very gently go. <laughs> <laughs> it's,
1: you've obviously gone on to do so many great things, but it feels like a political career slightly unfulfilled. I mean, there must have been a period where, it wouldn't have been inconceivable, particularly once Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister, so that you could have followed her and been Britain's second female leader.
0: Um, I think if that sort of thing is going to happen, first of all, people needed a break from Margaret. They had had enough uh, by the time that she finished of her rather hectoring style. Um, and I had got rather tired as well of, of endlessly being in the public eye. Um, I needed a break. I needed time out. I needed to think and talk about other things. I needed to think and talk about uh, feminism. One of the books that I edited and wrote for uh, was called What Women Want. And I was trying to figure out what the whole thing was about and how we might encourage more women to get actively involved and get to the top in, in every field in British life. Uh, That didn't make me a campaigner, but it meant that I could understand and place myself more accurately in a world that had changed dramatically from the early 70s when I was uh, starting to come into politics to the early 90s, by which stage I'm really starting to move away from it. Um, And I was enjoying my writing. I really enjoyed it. I've I've always been a big reader. I settled down, and I asked uh, the first editor, Richard Cohen, what kind of book should I write? You know, Do I do a, a slim volume or a big one? He said, well, what do you like reading? I said, well, I love big Victorian novels. He said, great. I said, right, you tell me. The best book about a woman ever written, because I wanted to have a heroine. The best book by a woman ever written, and the best book about British politics. I'm talking novels. Oh, he said, that's easy. Best book about a woman, Anna Karenina, Tolstoy. The best book by a woman, George Eliot's Middlemarch. He said, you'll enjoy that. It's uh, written about the time of the Great Reform Act. And the best book about politics is Anthony Trollope, The Way We Live Now. So... Wow, I'm I'm in it. And actually, if you look very carefully, you'll find that some of the characters in a parliamentary fair have similar names to characters in Middlemarch. <laughs> and what really made me laugh was none of the bloody critics ever noticed.
1: I thought you were going to say had similar names to conservative MPs.
0: Um, well, I like the way that Victorian novelists would write something into the surnames. And um Tell you something about what the what the character was supposed to be like. Yes, um, but that said, when I started, I just had my characters called A, B, C, D, and E, and I knew what they were all going to do and what role they played in the novel. And I was having a wonderful time writing this stuff. What was then an unbelievable thing was um, they hit the uh, bookstores just in 1994 as we started to have all this. Um, stuff about MPs misbehaving. And there I wrote in a novel about it all. Number one bestseller, quarter million copies sold. Oh, my God, for the first time in my life, I've got money in the bank. It's Why would I want to go back? that's easy, that's complicated to answer your question. Why would I want to go back?
1: Well, for the same reason that you went in in the first place, to, to get things done for people that, that need an effective voice.
0: Yes. The problem is that backbench MPs, are like Pond Life. Um, they have a hell of a lot of work to do. It's a long, hard slog. You're looking after 80,000 people. You're trying to get uh, stuff done to improve your constituency, like maybe your carriageway road. You're, um, you're extremely busy. you would be working 70, 80, 90-hour week. You're driving backwards and forwards every week. It's not well paid. There's no money. Um, You're struggling a bit, actually. Even then, the allowances for staff were a bit meagre. You've got one member of staff in London and half a member of staff in the constituency, and you are endlessly in the spotlight. And that's not a great situation to be in. If you have a choice of being a best-selling novelist, being invited to book fairs in Dublin, and, you know, that was fun.
1: More fun than... um having egg producers calling for your head?
0: Well, actually, by by the late 90s, they were contacting me and saying, um, you were right. Goodness me. Um, Can you help us? And uh, my response to that was, well, I'm not a biochemist or um, biologist, uh, but if you can tell me that the eggs are no longer contaminated, I will tell everybody. And I won't take any money for it. And it was 2004 before they got to that stage. It really was really hard to do. Uh, and even now, occasionally we get flickers of um, problems with the uh, eggs. We last August, for example. But um, I've promoted them ever since. And I do say that they are the best eggs in the world and that they're safe to eat. And I, the only thing I've ever had from them was an egg cup.
1: You must get, well, if you ever buy eggs in the supermarket, you must get wise, crack comments from time to time from yeah. the person on the tail or something or the person behind you in the queue.
0: Well, I haven't been to a supermarket for several months now.
1: Of course, yes. Yeah. It's a very different world now.
0: A different world entirely. Occasionally. No, not really. Not really. People around here, I live in the Peak District and it's a very friendly and quite respectful place. Derbyshire is a place that i came back to partly because people are very smart and capable but um don't feel any obligation to be clever clever dicks um and that's nice it's good to i'm a neighbor morning edwina how are you doing yeah that's i like it here very much indeed
1: edwina i've kept you for far longer than than i than i said i would this has just been absolutely superb i can't thank you enough for coming on it's been great thank you Matt, I- thank you. Well, there you go, Edwina Curry. What an experience! And I have that feeling now. You know, when you come out of the cinema, and it just takes you a while to readjust to normal life and figure out where you are and who you are. It was like that. I was completely immersed in the time in which she was describing. I absolutely went back in time with her there, and I can't recommend her diaries highly enough. It is different to reading an autobiography because they're written at the time, they're not done retrospectively. It gives it a different power, a completely different energy to the writing. So that was just, uh, that was, I sat here for a while afterwards and it was like watching the end credits roll. It, there was something really cinematic. Uh, about that conversation Um, do leave us a review on iTunes Uh, if you get a second thank you to all of you that have done and been so kind it does help other people find it you can email the show at gmail.com. I know this is a really difficult time for so many people so I hope this provides you with the escapism and the entertainment that uh, that I get from listening to other podcasts Um, so thank you for downloading it thank you for uh, saying nice things about it and I shall see you soon. Ta